Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. And you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you're safe and well as you tune into this week's episode of the show. I want to thank you for getting in comment with in contact with me since last week's show. I know a number of you really enjoyed it. So thank you, as always, for your lovely messages. On this week's episode of the show, we are going to delve into that Copernicus report. So if you didn't hear about that in the last few days, stay with us. We will be joined a little bit later on by Professor John Sweeney. But I thought before we get into um, something as uh, detailed as that, we bring you something that is going to impact our daily lives and in the very near future. So to discuss the new deposit return scheme, we're joined once again by the environmental correspondent with the Irish Independent, Caroline O'Doherty. Caroline, you are very welcome back to the show. Thank you. Caroline, you and I have discussed, and indeed I've discussed on the show, the deposit return scheme since... Actually, since the show began, we have been talking about this idea that we're going to be able to get a couple of cent back if we return our plastic bottles and cans to retailers or to recycle them in a more um, simplified manner. And we now know that after much delay, these vending machines, we've seen them around um, at supermarkets around the country. They will be up and running as of the 1st of February. Um but, you know, I think it's fair to say that most listeners have busy lives and we intend not to really bother about these things until we know they're actually happening. So these vending machines, what exactly are they? How do they work? What do listeners need to know? OK, well, what you need to know first is nobody's making you go near a vending machine because that's the first question I've been asked. Why do I have to do this? What are they making me do? They're making my life miserable. <laughs> OK, you you're going to be brought to this vending machine, Caroline, with a gun pointed at your head every single time we return to supermarkets. That's what's going to happen. Your, your <laughs> kitchen cupboards are going to be raided for any plastic bottles and cans, and you're going to be physically uh, physically removed from your green bin. You're not going to be able to put them in there. Yeah, no, none of that. Look, if you don't want to go near one of these vending machines or return your bottles and cans in any other way than you've been doing normally, as in putting them in your green bin, hopefully that's where you've been putting them responsibly, you can keep doing that. But from February 1st, you will pay an extra fee, which is the deposit. We're calling this the deposit return scheme. So the deposit means that when you buy um, an aluminium or steel can of beverage, usually something fizzy, um, or a plastic bottle of a drink, so anything from 150 uh, milliliters up, that's those kind of little mini fruit shop drinks for kids to small bottles of water, right up to a three liter uh, bottle of water possibly, or of a fizzy mineral. Um, you will pay an extra fee on that. You're going to pay 15 cent on anything up to f- uh, half a liter. Uh, so 150 milliliters up to uh, 500 uh, milliliters. And you'll pay 25 cent on anything over uh, 500 milliliters up to three uh, liters. So that is an extra fee, okay, and mm-hmm. and will add up. So if you're buying sort of a you know a, a tray, a six pack of of cans of cola, their standard size is three hundred and thirty milliliters. That's fifteen cent each. That's an extra ninety cent on your on your on your six pack, which will be noticeable, especially in some of the discount retailers because they 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 don't sell the branded ones. They sell their own brand and they're very cheap. So ninety cent on top of that is going to be noticeable. 
The thing is, when you bring those cans back, you will get your 90 cent back. So how will you do this? It's two ways of doing it. If you're most of the main supermarkets now have these vending machines, reverse vending machines, they're called usually outside or in the foyer of the shop if it's big. And you simply will bring your can and your bottle along and you'll pop it in there. Don't squash it down because it's going to have a new barcode on it. And then the machine needs to be able to read that. Don't squash it down. Leave the lid on if it's a bottle. Pop it in and the machine will actually read that and give you, issue you a little receipt, which is actually a voucher for the value of the deposits that you initially paid on them. You and that, take- I think that the, the voucher element is, I hadn't expected that, I'll be honest, okay? Because I have grown up watching American TV where uh, you will see on, you know, American dramas where there might be maybe a, um, a school project or maybe homeless people encouraged to collect these cans and bottles, bring them back to a retailer and get coins back. Well, we're do- we're not we're- we don't live in Hollywood. We're doing this in a in a voucher scheme, which I think people might be expecting to get the coins back into their hands there and then. But that's not how we're doing. it. Yeah, sadly, the machines are not going to spit out coins at you, but you can actually turn the voucher into cash. So what you can do is use that voucher in the shop that has provided the reverse vending machine. Uh, you can't unfortunately use it in a different shop down the street. Um, so you can go in and buy something and much like you get a coupon if you want have one of those loyalty cards for a supermarket, they'll just scan it and it'll take off the price. Uh, it'll take off the value of the voucher, off the price of whatever you bought. Or you can hand in the voucher and just get get your, your few cents back in cash. Okay. Uh, so what people are likely to do, obviously, is maybe gather up a bunch of them and bring them along together. And you can get that in cash. Now, it will be cash. You can't get it back on your credit card or debit card. So, um so there's a bit of a transactional, I suppose, time that's going to go into this. Um, that's if your shop has a vending machine, reverse vending machine, I should say. Um, smaller shops uh, possibly won't put up a reverse vending machine. They can opt to take the bottle or can back over the counter. And it'll be the same thing will apply. Um, you know, they'll they'll scan it, they'll see the value of it, and they can either say take it off the price of something you've bought in the shop, or you can give it back to you in cash. There's two ways of doing it. Okay. So there is, I suppose, I think there's a bit of an education that we all need, myself included on this. Like This is a bit an awful lot like when we brought in the, the, the fee for the plastic shopping bag. And we all took a bit of time to get used to doing that and having to bring the bags into us as opposed to, in my case, leaving them on the hook in the hallway with the intention of bringing them to the shop. Um. So when we say, for instance, and I am going to name supermarkets here just to make it very clear for the listener's purpose not to advertise any particular supermarket chain. But say, for example, I go this weekend and I do my weekly shop in Aldi and I buy a six pack bottle of own brand water. And over the course of the following week, I drink all of those and I want to bring those bottles back to get my deposit back. Do I have to go back to the Aldi where I bought them from? First things first. No, you don't. You can go to any shop that's offering, that's taking part in this scheme. The only sort of provision on that is that when you get your voucher from that shop, that's where you have to spend it because they're providing the infrastructure or the service. So that's they're going to process the voucher for you. So if, for instance, I did my shop, I got those six bottles of water in Aldi, I could then a week or two later go down to Tesco's with the empty bottles, use the machine in Tesco's, but the voucher that the machine gives me will be for Tesco's. That's right. And vice versa. You'll be able to swap between them. Do retailers have to have one of these machines installed? 
No, they don't. Um, first of all, there's an exemption. They should have already applied for it. I'm told by mid-December. There are shops that you know would be very small and will say you know there might be one person ever on the counter, and they're allowed to. This is a national scheme, um, and all the producers in in all the bottlers and all are involved in this, so they're all on board with this. But if you maybe a very small shop or perhaps the retail end of of a shop is very small, you're allowed to apply for an exemption. Say this really is not. This is going to be more of a headache for me um, than you know a certain service and there may be costs involved and there's time involved and I really can't be doing it. So you, you can go into a shop and be told, sorry, we don't do that. What apparently they've been told they must do, and it will be interesting to see how this is run, is that they must tell you where the nearest shop is that is providing the service or put a little notice up, you know. So there's kind of that thing that I suppose they're trying a little bit of carrot and stick and saying, well, you might be sending a customer away. Um, but let's look at, you know, there are some shops that just won't suit. They'll say, well, what if somebody comes in, you know, with a big bag of bottles they've been storing away for the last weeks and they want to go through every one of them. There's only one person on the counter and now there's a stream of people out the door waiting, you know, because I'm scanning bottles by hand because I don't have a machine. Um, there will also be a rebate for those that do have machines but don't hit a certain target. Um, okay. you know where maybe um where maybe sort of just footfall is is smaller. So it'll be interesting to, again to see you know how that all works out because certainly there has been some kickback from the retail um industry, the smaller the smaller groups because they feel the chains have the chain stores have the space in the car parks and you will have seen some of these or they have mm-hmm. the big foyers you know and they can put a roof over you and it's nice and comfortable for customers and they feel well you know they're going to get they're going to get the biggest throughput of people. And if we, we're going to put, go to a lot of effort and we're not going to get much back for this. So, you know, um, and there, there may be some logic in that too. You could argue that actually having the machine would remove the effort, but, um, you know, you wouldn't have to have a staff member doing all the scanning, but hey, I won't, I'm not going to go down that particular rabbit hole. It does remind me of um, if you were a, a child in the 90s and you watched Miracle on 34th Street and this idea that, um, Mr. Claus would refer you to where the toy could be gotten elsewhere in the city. Um, yeah, so uh, perhaps somebody who came up with these rules might have been watching that one as a kid as well as me. But um, so, Caroline, like you say, there has been a bit of kickback on this. I've seen headlines, I've seen posts on social media claiming that this is going to be the the death knell for our corner shop. That we're going to see the end. That this will be the final nail in the coffin for for those small shops. How concerned are small retailers about this? Well, you know, they have been. Now, they've gone a little quieter in recent weeks. Um, um, certainly, you know, to last autumn, there seemed to be a lot of uh, apprehension around it. And I think some of their questions have been answered and I think some of their concerns have been allayed. But a lot of them sort of want to wait and see how it works. Um, they're really not convinced. But, you know, like if people have gone to the corner shop, small corner shop, because it's their convenient shop, it's probably still their convenience shop for returning a bottle. Yeah. Now, I could be wrong on that. It could be a case where, you know, the, the the teenager, the resourceful teenager in the house says, no, 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 I'm going to gather them all up in a big, big bag and then I'm going to take them all down some evening down to, you know, if you give me a lift down to the, the nearest big shop. So maybe, maybe it will turn out to be a disadvantage to them. But, you know, there is a reason why small shops are convenient. It's because they're right there in, in the community. And, you know, I think, you know, is the same as when you go maybe to return an item of clothing and, you know, most customers are quite responsible. They know that this might take a little while and then it has to go back on your debit card and you're trying to find the receipt and the, the computer is trying to analyze it and there's a queue of people falling behind you. And a lot of people are quite happy if the person on the on the till says, do you mind if I just deal with these few customers first and I'll come back to you? Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah. 
I think most people who have stored up maybe a lot of bottles or stored up a lot of vouchers, you know, will be quite happy just kind of stand aside. Like, you know, most people are fairly polite and um, I'm fairly, I think, you know, spirit, community spirited in that sense. I don't think that customers will cause smaller shops any great difficulty. So I just think you're right. It just needs a little bedding in. And, and people do need to understand that you don't have to do this. Yes, you will be financially penalized if you don't do it. And um, there is also that thing that perhaps we should mention is that nobody He's forcing you to buy a sort of a chemical sugar-free, chemically replacement sugary drink in yeah. a bottle. And, you know, I, I do feel there are, of course, people who have really poor water quality and who buy water bottles. The big sort of five litre bottles that, you know, people who are on, who have poor water, drinking water quality on an ongoing basis buy, they are not part of this. So there won't be an extra Why fee. Why not? Them. Um, it's you know initially it's to do with size. Um, these machines, if you if they'll, they'll have this kind of rounded slot on them in the front, yeah. uh, and you're, you're because you have to put in the bottle or the, the canister hole undamaged so that they can read the um the barcode on it. I suppose if it was enormously big or big enough to put in one of those five liter bottles, you'd be scared. And I don't even want to say it to give ideas to people. You'd be scared of what people might put into the vending machine. Okay, um, just, you know, out of badness. But, um, you know, there are in in certain states in Australia, they're taking back a far bigger range of drinks and, and general sort of recept- containers. You know, I mean, I was asking, well, what about the bottle, you know, that you put, you get a plastic bottle of olive oil or, you know, your fabric conditioner. And at the moment, no, they're not taking those. They're very specifically about what we would call beverages or minerals or squash or water, or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or Oh, drinks cans, alcoholic drink cans as well, non-alcoholic, all of that. Um, but there is scope. You know, if it works and we all behave well and don't mess with the machines, there is scope. And they've you know, also talked about extending it to glass. You know, we're actually, as a country, we're really, really good at recycling glass. Um, but it might be even better if, if you could also bring glass to these these reverse vending machines. And the thing to remember at the back of all of this is we go through about 1.7 billion plastic bottles drinks bottles and cans a year in this country. And we're pretty good at recycling them in terms of putting them into the green bins, but a third of them are just disappearing. They're yeah. not ending up in the green bins. That's 500 million. Okay. It's, yeah. uh, it is, it's, it's, it's disgraceful. Yeah. And like other countries have been doing this for years. I've said several times in the show, I distinctly remember as a teenager staying with a German family and every week as part of the grocery shop, you went around the house, you collected up any plastic bottles you might have collected during the week. And they that was the first part of the grocery shop was you went in and you you got your fund back with what they called it at the time. And you, you did your return there. So look, we are very much late to the game here, but hopefully that means that um, the people organising this have learned from the experiences of, of other countries. And as Caroline says, like we should like our bottle of detergent for, you know, the washing machine like surely we should be able to recycle that as well in the same method at some point in the future but for now Caroline I'm afraid I'm going to have to let you go we will um, keep an eye on how this uh, deposit return scheme functions and uh, I do hope they're not vandalised Caroline and that they're um, at least if people go near them that they're doing so uh, with the best of intention Caroline O'Doherty environmental correspondent from the Irish Independent thank you very much for joining us on this week's episode of Let's Go Green coming up after the break we will be joined by Professor John Sweeney from Maynooth University stay tuned Let's Go Green sponsored by Airgrid managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future check out airgrid.ie for more you're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 and I hope you have been enjoying our show so far this week. Well, 
Over the last six or seven days, one of the biggest stories news-wise across the globe has been this new report from the Copernicus Centre in the European Union telling us that they now have scientific evidence to back up the fact that surface air temperatures broke records globally in 2023. In a nutshell, 2023 was the hottest year on record. Now, that in and of itself may not be, be news to you, really, because we have been talking about this and, uh, and these developments over the course of the last 12 months. And indeed, we've seen quite dramatic um, incidents over the last 12 months with you know um, weather-related events. But the report it's of itself is quite an important one and is worth further discussion. So to tease this out with us, we are joined once again by Professor John Sweeney of Maynooth University. John, you are most welcome back to Let's Go Green. Hi, Ashley. John, first things first, what or who is Copernicus? Well, Copernicus is the EU's climate change service. And uh, the big advantage that they have is that they have access to, uh, I think, um, hundreds of thousands of temperature records across across the globe, almost on a near time, well, a real time basis. And that means that they can, if you like, average out um, conditions across the whole of the, the planet very quickly. And they can make deductions as to whether or not um, then, you know, tem- temperatures have increased or decreased on the previous day and what kind of records might be broken. Um, I'm not sure of the exact number, but it's somewhere between 100,000 and a million thermometers. So you really can't argue with that. Um, uh, Even if you're a skeptic, um, you can't argue with the physics. And what they do show, of course, is, as you said, um, that 2023 has seen records tumbling, really falling like dominoes across the globe. Um, when you look at the individual days, one of the things that is surprising is that every single day during 2023 um, was warmer than the pre-industrial times, warmer than the 19th century. And that's the first time that's happened. Um, It's also the first time that global temperature averages, which is the summation, the average of all of those thermometers we mentioned, all of them averaged out, came to a value of about just a shade under 1.5 degrees warmer than the pre-industrial average. So what it tells us is that, um, well, um, things have changed globally in terms of climate. They've changed in a way which is not really um, advantageous to the globe as a whole. Uh, And they've also begun to threaten, begun to approach the critical threshold which we defined at the Paris uh, Treaty way back in 2015 uh, of 1.5 degrees. And Really what it's saying to us is that we haven't made the progress that we need to make, but also that we're now on the cusp of passing that threshold probably sometime over the next decade. Um, Now, we we will get days, we will get, Mm -hmm. um, in fact, we got two days this year, which were over two degrees above the global average, the next critical threshold. But we will get individual years, which may be above that 1.5. And it may well settle down again below that for a year or two. 
And we, we're probably seeing that at the moment with okay. the El Nino event. Okay. So, like, I suppose anecdotally, you know, talk to anybody lately, anyone I've been chatting with has commented on the strange weather or the unusual weather that we've... So we've all been aware, I think it's fair to say, in our daily lives that the weather has changed somewhat. Like um, at home on Christmas Day, our snowdrops bloomed. And I have never seen snowdrops in bloom on the 25th of December before. So like, you know, there are little things that are happening in our day to day lives that are helping us as the, you know, the regular members of the public who who don't study these things like you do, John, see for ourselves what is happening. But why is it important that we have a body like Copernicus with access to all of this data? Like they've issued the press release. The press release is... As, and I can see that they have tried to simplify it for the likes of me to be able to read it. Um, but it is complex and it is dense. Why is that important? Like, will it inspire change or have an impact now that we have this concrete data? Well, I'm, I'm not sure it will actually galvanise change in the way that um, you or I might hope it does. And that's because people relate much more to their own local environment and to short-term events. Um, if you're thinking of Mullingar, for example, as a, as a good example, um, you may remember the horrendous summer we had uh, last summer in, in July and August. And I had a quick look at um, the rainfall, for example, for 2023 there. You got 178 millimetres of rainfall in July. The previous year, you got 31. You got 132, uh, sorry, 114 in August. The previous year, you got 35. So people are aware that we have these swings in our climate. Um, and it's quite hard to, to make the long-term deduction from those. And that's why a big body, an international body like Copernicus is able to say, yes, okay, in the Midlands, you had a, a rather unusual event in July and August. You had a heat wave in September, incidentally, which gave Ireland its warmest temperature of last year. Um, but overall, the globe um, is it, it, a bigger place than the Midlands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, it's important to make that big picture because it's the big picture that shows us what's happening. And when you're dealing with a gas like carbon dioxide, it mixes very quickly through the whole atmosphere, through the whole globe. It's not something that sticks close to the industrial sources that may produce it or the agricultural sources that may produce it. Um, it, it does mix. And so you need a global overview. And that's what um, a, a national body, an international body like Copernicus uh, provides us with. It tells us, for example, in Europe, it wasn't the hottest year ever recorded in Europe. It was the second hottest after 20, uh, 2020. But it tells us that, you know, Europe is still warming twice as quick, for example, as the global average. The Arctic is warming four times as quick as the global average. It tells us a little about, OK, if you ignore local factors like the ocean around Ireland, which may have a moderating event on our uh, on our climate at times, if you ignore those kind of local factors and look at the big picture by averaging out those hundreds of thousands of therm thermometers, then you get a conclusion which is robust which tells us 
We're doing something wrong. We're doing something that we have to address. And we're not going in the right direction at all. Um, we've had a lot of scientists in the past few months telling us that we're going to really get up to three degrees of warming by the end of this century if we don't cut back very quickly on our carbon emissions. Now, three degrees of warming, you know, we may like it here in January in Ireland uh, for a few days at least, but three degrees of warming would be catastrophic yeah. in many parts of the world. And uh, that's why, you know, the, the the Copernicus report has to be taken uh, very seriously because it shows unprecedented global temperatures from June onwards last year, where every month from June to the end of the month, uh, the end of the year last year, broke its own record. Uh, now, people also will say, you know, it's warmer than previous recorded. And that's that's something we have to be very careful about as well, because we don't have thermometer records going back more than a century. We don't know, for example, a lot of what was happening outside the developed countries in the last century mm-hmm. where, there, where there were good observations, but not much in, in South America, not much in Oceania, not much in Africa. So it's important, therefore, that we have a way of extrapolating back those temperatures and saying, is it is it really exceptional what we've had in the past year? Because like, there will always be people who firmly believe, well, the earth went through an ice age period, that that this is, the, and they are convinced that this is in the natural course of events, that, it, that we don't need to, to treat this as a crisis. Well, there weren't many of us around in the Ice Age for a start, and we weren't doing that well as a human population in the Ice Age. We were fleeing Mm -hmm. south of those ice sheets to warmer climes, the few of us that were around at that stage. So it's not a particularly good assumption. And we know now what caused those Ice Ages. We know it was caused by orbital changes in the Earth around the Sun, which take place over hundreds of thousands of years and tens of thousands of years not something that's going to affect human occupants of the planet in the next 50 or 50 years or so so we can also say therefore that you know when we talk about records we know that we can reconstruct climate back um, to the ice age and beyond now very accurately without the use of thermometers by using tree rings by using bubbles in the ice sheets by using pollen analysis we know what was growing what was living then what kind of conditions it could tolerate because we know the same things are around today uh, one of the ingenious things I, I i always loved was the ability to put a probe into the um, pyramids in Egypt, into those chambers which had been sealed for 5,000 years. And so you sampled the air which had been there for 5,000 years and you could say, what was the carbon dioxide concentration when the pharaoh was interred there? Um, And that tells us, you know, we can get samples of air from there. We can get them from bubbles trapped in the ice sheets and we can make a good stab at what extreme conditions applied then or didn't apply then. And that's why when Copernicus, in their very careful language uh, last week, talked about, you know, the warmest year on record, 
They were talking, strictly speaking, scientifically on the warmest year since uh, good records began in the last century. But really, we now can say with a lot of confidence, last year was the warmest year for 100,000 years or more. So we can use those those skills, if you like, to make a much bigger picture of how the climate crisis has progressed more rapidly in the past few years, perhaps even more rapidly than the models themselves were suggesting. And one of the things which scientists are increasingly coming to the conclusion about is that nature um, is maybe overtaking our model output a little quicker than we thought. Um, models are, are a bit conservative. They work on the basis of year-to-year increments. Nature works on a, on what we call a step functional change. It, it lurches from one point to another, uh, often more extremely than we might anticipate. And that's the worry that we have with climate, that we may approach those lurches, those tipping points, where things may not easily be recoverable once we breach them. And that's why people talk about the 1.5 degree or the 2.0 degree uh, warming above climate um, in pre-industrial times. So it's a, it's a lesson, I suppose, that we don't have all the answers but there are unknowns and vulnerabilities that we really should be looking at very seriously if we want to have a sustainable world uh, for the people that come after us. Well, Professor John Sweeney of Maynooth University, um, I'm going to ask you to stay put. We're going to take a very short break and we will be back after these ads. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. And on this week's episode of the show, we are very glad to be joined by Professor John Sweeney of Maynooth University. Now, John, before the break, we were teasing out the results of this new release from Copernicus, the climate change service in the European Union, and just the stark findings that scientists there have been able to come up with based on data access points from all over the world, as you were explaining it, hundreds of thousands of thermometers all over the world. Um, And we now know that, as you said yourself before the break, 2023 was the hottest year, we now believe for 100,000 years, thereabouts. And that is, quite frankly, terrifying. It's not necessarily new information, but it's very frightening for people to hear. And like you, you said at the start, that it might not evoke concrete action in the way that you or I would like from politicians around the world. Um, We might not see tangible action as a result of this particular finding. But I do have to ask, do findings like these mean that we now, on an individual level, have to start preparing to live our lives differently? Um, Like I'm thinking and I'm asking that because I remember over the last couple of weeks, there was awful flooding in the United Kingdom. And I saw this clip, it kept on going on and on on the news channel I was watching over the course of a couple of days where it was one man in a countryside place in in England. I don't know the geography of England terribly well, I have to admit. But he'd effectively built a flood wall around his house, around his garden, because the problem had gotten so severe for him and his family. Like, do we have to assess how we live our lives and how we might be affected in our localities 
if climate change is to continue? Yes, I think the man you you refer to, um, he was based in Gloucester, as far as I know. And it was an area where I think the Severn has a long history of flooding. And there were very dramatic photographs of the place flooded. But his wall that he had built um, protecting his house uh, and and his family. And uh, he was asked, as far as I recall, was it all worth it? And uh, his, uh, his conclusion was it was, despite the expense that it had entailed. And in a way, that's a good example of adaptation uh, because, you know, we talk about the two sides of climate being, first of all, mitigation. Let's stop causing the problem by reducing our emissions. But secondly, let's adapt where we can to what's coming down the line that we won't be able to avoid. And that takes us into the realm of flood protection. It takes us into the realm of changing the crops we grow. It takes us into the realm of changing our our transport, our energy systems quite radically. And yes, we will have to do all of that. Um, We're not going to be able to escape some of the extremes that we have brought upon ourselves, um, partly because we're a small country and we're dependent on global agreements, which are so far not really forthcoming. Um, I've just come back uh, from Dubai, from COP28. It was a very depressing experience. Mm. What I did learn was that um, vested interests, not just interests that we're used to here in Ireland, but vested interests internationally are thwarting international progress very effectively on this area. So we do have to to do what we can to protect. Now, in the Midlands in particular, of course, you have a long problem of flooding in many parts of the Midlands. And I think what the lesson that we get from what we see happening around us is that flooding will be the problem that we have to pay most for in Ireland in the years to come. We won't be too concerned with warming. Um, We may not have to change our agricultural system that much, uh, although there will be tweaks necessary in it. But our big issue will be uh, increased rainfall because we know that the warmer world can produce a lot more in the way of water vapour in the atmosphere. And we know that every one degree of warming uh, can hold, the atmosphere can hold about 7% more water vapour. So it's not surprising that all of the models that we run say we're going to get wetter. Mm. And the evidence really of the the last 30 years from Metairn is that Ireland has become a wetter as well as a warmer place, about 4% more rainfall. And a lot of that will come in winter um, in places that don't really need it on ground that's already saturated. And so we will find places flooding more frequently in the years ahead, but we will also find places flooding which never flooded before. And that's, that's the real worry in many parts of the Midlands, for example, that, you know, you may think I'm all right, Jack, in, in my yeah. little, um, but in fact, you know, the, the flood peaks will be bigger and it will affect places that have been hitherto immune from flooding. So I think adaptation is going to cost us an awful lot of money. The OPW are spending a very great amount of money protecting towns um, and with some success as well. Um, it's interesting that when Middleton flooded, for example, Clonmel didn't. Very, uh, very interesting. Yes, it was you know 
know, a, a target for flooding for many years before that. So we can protect. Um, it will cost a lot more than perhaps we've budgeted for at the moment, but we will have to spend a lot of our national income coping with climate change. The costs will be huge. But and John, on an individual good. level, like because a lot of the time, I think the overwhelm that comes with this conversation is that a lot of us feel that we lack the knowledge as to how we could prepare ourselves as individuals, that we're waiting for the government to do something or we're waiting for the authority in our area to take action. And like, doesn't mean that, like, I'll be perfectly honest, if my home where I grew up and go back to frequently, my home place, I don't know that I would know how to protect it from flooding if all of a sudden the, the, the Tullamore River were to burst its banks or the River Clotha was to burst its banks. Do you know, like, I don't, I, I, I never had to learn that before. So, like, do we have to educate ourselves on an individual level as well to at least have the knowledge on how to deal with these things if and when they do occur? I don't think so, Ashling. I don't think you you should be obliged to get an engineering degree to protect your house, for example. Okay. You you are paying taxes. You are part of a local authority, which you look to as as that as being part of their responsibilities. And you know, one of the things which has happened this year is that each local authority in Ireland has been asked to designate a decarbonisation zone in their jurisdiction, a town or a village or an area where radical steps will be taken to reduce carbon emissions. Um, I know in my own case, Maynooth has been designated by Kildare, uh, and there's a whole host of actions which are now being considered by the local authority as part of their um, local climate action plan. And these are going to become mandatory for local authorities. Um, so they will have to do quite a lot of things that we haven't hitherto expected them to do in terms of uh, conserving water in terms of restricting transport in some areas, in terms of discouraging especially unnecessary transport um, around, for example, our schools in the morning, um, stopping people idling, sitting outside schools, idling engines, uh, encouraging more in the way of active walking and cycling, encouraging more public uh, transport systems. All of that we have to rely on local and national government leadership essentially to provide. But as an individual, I don't think you should be asked to protect your house by building a wall around it. But as an individual, you can play your part also by, for example, being more efficient in how you use your energy. If you go out to buy a washing machine or a tumble dryer today or a fridge, don't go for the cheapest one if it means that it's energy inefficient because mm -hmm. it will be much better for you, both financially and energy-wise, to look at that rainbow of colours inside the door and go for one that is more uh, up towards the A-plus or the A-range. Um, there's been a bit of grade inflation in those as well. You need to be careful about. Yeah, I remember when an A rating was an actual A rating, but anyway, yeah. that's a, that's a whole other conversation, John. So yeah, I suppose it's about like 
trying not to fall victim to that overwhelm and actually just look at our day to day lives and and how can we do things and yeah the 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 dishwasher or the tumble dryer that's a G rating might be dirt cheap today but how much is it going to cost you to run that every single day for the next five or ten years that it may be it may survive if you don't believe in built in obsolescence but anyway <laughs> but Professor John Sweeney it is always very informative to to have you on the show so. Thank you very much for bringing your expertise to this week's episode of Let's Go Green. You're welcome, Ashley. We will be back after the break. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode of the show. And this is where I remind you that I'm always looking for content for the show. So if you're involved in an environmentally friendly project or you want to find out more about how to be more environmentally friendly or you're doing something to benefit the environment in your community, please do get in contact with me, Ashling O'Rourke, through the midlands103.com website. So if you go on to midlands103 com. Click on the on air team. You'll see a picture of me and my name. Click on that and then that'll take you to take to send me an email directly from there. I am on occasion, I have to admit, slow to respond because life gets a bit hectic at times. But I do promise I do read all of those messages. You can always send me a message on LinkedIn. I'm just Ashling O'Rourke CC on LinkedIn. Just look up the communications coach either and you'll find me there. But before I leave you um, this week, I wanted to give a shout out to um, a a pop up a group that has been organised a little bit ad hoc in Tullamore. But I saw it on Facebook and I thought I'd give um, the ladies a shout out. So late last year, I spoke to Sergeant Graham Kavanagh about practical steps that we can all take to keep ourselves safe if we're out walking or exercising at this time of the year. Things like, you know, making sure that you have some sort of high visibility gear on you and and all of that stuff. But there's a new walking group, a burgeoning walking group um, that has started in the last week in Tullamore in County Offaly. As I understand it, they're meeting every weekday evening at 7pm at O'Connor Square beside Eddie Rockets. So 7 o'clock O'Connor Square um, beside Eddie Rockets. And I'm sure when they met last Monday evening they were tuned into Let's Go Green while they were walking. Um, but listen, I just said I'd give them a shout out. It, it seems to be um, really it's up and running a week and I know there's early days but there seems to be an awful lot of people in the town getting involved in it. And if you don't want to go walking and exercising alone um, because of safety you know that you just might not feel um, as safe doing it on your own or even if you feel like you know what I'd really love to meet some new people and this is an easy way a low pressure way of doing that um, I, I, I said I'd give it a mention when I had um, the time on this week's episode of Let's Go Green and as I said if you're organising something similar or you're doing anything that you feel that would be of benefit to the community, please feel free to get in contact with me. Um, My final item this week, and I will delve into this a little bit further, but I just saw before we came on air there that um, the, the postal service in France has a new initiative. So you know the way in the modern world we do an awful lot of online shopping and frequently that online shopping involves clothing where you have to try it on and make sure it fits and sometimes it doesn't fit and we all intend on bringing it back to the post office and, you know, returning it and getting our money back. But sometimes, you know, life gets hectic 
And we don't always get to do that in as timely a fashion as we would like. Okay, for all honest. But apparently in some post offices around France, they obviously have a bit of space going spare. So they have created some changing rooms. So now you can go to the post office, uh, collect your post, your parcel, say, um, at the post office, try on the outfit while you're there. And if it doesn't fit or you don't like it, just return it before you even leave the building. And um It seems rather, it's one of those ideas that I kind of wonder why no one else has thought of it before, but it's ingenious. Like, you know, why not? It it makes perfect sense. Now, I know the post office in question would need to have a bit of spare space and any post office that I've been in in Ireland, generally speaking, doesn't have spare space. But it is an idea. It it is something that uh, somebody in the postal service in France was clearly thinking outside of the box on uh, that day in the office. But I just thought it was a really interesting initiative because, you know, so much of what we order on um, online now, it, it, it's delivered directly to us. And they're and like all the packaging even that we have to deal with, like the sheer level of packaging is frustrating. So if we can do this and not even bring the items home, and return them there and then, it seems like a much more efficient and in the long term, a more sustainable way of doing things. So let me know what you think. Get in contact with me, as I said, through the on-air team section of midlands103.com. Well, I hope you have a great week and you stay safe and you keep talking and chatting about environmental measures. But for now, I am going to have to let you go. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Let's Go Green. We'll be back same time next week with another edition of the show. In the meantime, stay safe. Have a great week. And if you're listening to us on your podcast app, please do give us an old rating there. Every vote counts. Thank you. Good night. Good luck.